Um, I think we'll, we'll, we'll kick off. Um, I'm very pleased to welcome you all here for this, this session. We're going to be talking tonight about conspiracies, distrust and suspicions in the arena of public health. And we have four speakers, all of whom have worked on different aspects of conspiracy theories. Uh, we have Professor Nikolai Natras. Um, oh, I've got my wrong notes. Yes, Nikolai Natras, who is the director of the AIDS and uh, Society Research Unit within the Center of Social Science um, uh, Research at the University of Cape Town. We have Laura Borgart, who is Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and Research Director of the Division of General Pediatrics at Boston Children's Hospital. And we've got Heidi Larson, who is Senior Lecturer at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And then I haven't got any notes here for Melissa Parker because it says here, I'm sure you can do a better job than I can in thinking of something to say. But I mean, we've been married for a long time and she's still an enigma uh, to me. But anyway, she is the Director of Medical Anthropology at um, uh, International Medical Anthropology Institute at Brunel University. So I think we'll go straight into the, the sessions. We've got f um, four speakers. Um, I'm going to try and keep them all to 15 minutes or so, so we'll have time for discussion uh, at the end. So, Nikolai, can, where's Nikolai gone? Yes, you're going to bring your book up. Excellent. Do you want to stand here or you want to stand over there? Okay. I need to one? operate the machine. Yes, it's the, apparently it's this click here. Does that work? Yeah. You want this one? Or you want that one? Oh, this one. Oh, good evening. Um, right, I'm kicking off here uh, by starting off talking about some of the themes that I've written about in, in a new book I've just published, but uh, picking up particularly on the issue of credibility battles and contestation, because it's not just enough to understand where conspiracy theories come from. It's also really interesting to see how people have contested them because uh, these, these are areas of contestation uh, very much in AIDS. Right, so if we look at studies about how many people endorse or believe AIDS conspiracy theories, uh, there's two countries where there's good empirical data. The one is the US, and Laura Bogart's going to talk a lot more about that. She's been uh, the main person, in fact, generating a lot of this data. And you can see it's very much within the African-American community, and most of the studies have concentrated only on them, and depending on the sample, you get different levels of belief. But there's quite a strong, it's a minority view, but it's quite significant. It's a man-made virus, a form of genocide against blacks produced in a government laboratory. Anyway, we in Cape Town picked some of those same questions and just adapted them slightly for the local environment to ask well, AIDS was invented to kill black people. It was created by scientists in America, uh, deliberately created by humans. And this was a, a panel study of 3,000 young adults in Cape Town. And you can see it's again racialized, and it's a significant minority that agrees um, with these. So the big question is, why is it resonating uh, across different racial groups differently, and how do we think about it? But this being Cape Town and being part of South Africa, obviously we need to worry about AIDS denialism as well. So we asked, HIV is harmless and does not cause AIDS, antiretrovirals harm you more than help you. Those are the two key propositions that AIDS denialism uh, certainly has picked up by President Thabo Mbeki. Um, you know, that, that, that's the basis of that kind of AIDS denialist belief. 
And it's a form of conspiracy theory too. It's not obvious, it's not an AIDS origin conspiracy belief, but it's certainly a conspiratorial move against science. Because to believe this, you have to believe that the pharmaceutical industries corrupted the whole of the scientific community and that hundreds of thousands of people are in some sort of elaborate conspiracy to cover up the fact that actually HIV doesn't exist or it's harmful and antiretrovirals actually kill you. You've got to assume that all that evidence is somehow corrupt. So in my view, would say it qualifies as a conspiratorial view. Right, so this is something which um, I think it's important to recognize. I know that extreme postmodernists won't like truth claims, but you can pretty reasonably know that AIDS conspiracy beliefs are wrong. Because it's a real problem with a conspiracy theory. How do you actually disprove one if the conspiratorial claim is that all the evidence that you've got can't be trusted? Anyway, I still think that as a theorist you can stand back and make a reasonable judgment about that. And there's two things one can assume. There's an awful lot of genetic research that shows that HIV came from the simian immune deficiency virus from chimpanzees and sooty mangamy monkeys. And uh, that probably jumped the species barrier several times, many times between 1914 and 1947, and that it took off with urbanization and rapid growth in the 60s and 70s. In other words, long before we had U.S. biological weapons programs. So that's the first strike against the AIDS origin conspiracy belief. And with regard to antiretrovirals being um, harmful, what... I think is an important point to, to remember is that there's a, an amazing dialogue between what we know about HIV science, that the, you know, the, the virus that's sitting on the edge there attaches itself to the human T cells and central part of the immune system and then enters through into the cell, bringing with it two pieces of chemical which opens up, reverse transcriptase and integrase, and these two, once they've been opened up, Inside the cell, the virus then uses those two chemicals to integrate itself into the cell and turn it into a virus-producing machine. So that's what we know about the science. But then the ARVs come in our antiretroviral treatment, and they target exactly those two chemicals. So the reverse transcriptase inhibitors and the integrase inhibitors. So standing back and looking at this, this more than any other disease we know very well precisely what causes the pathogenesis and the treatment links in with it. Whereas many other treatments, we just know they work, we're not entirely sure how. So again, I think it's reasonable to assume that antiretrovirals work and that the AIDS science is worth believing. So to get on to, right, so it's wrong, these beliefs, at least reasonably so. Why do we care about these beliefs? And the answer we've got on this panel, all of us here, is that it matters for behavior. So AIDS conspiracy beliefs and AIDS denialist beliefs are harmful. So I'm taking that same data set from Cape Town. This is just a simple regression here. Condom use last sex. So ask, did you use a condom the last time you had sex? And we control for a lot of things like, is this a partner that you are pretty certain you're monogamous and they're monogamous, okay, or they're definitely not concurrent. And as you can see there, you're more likely to use a condom if it's definitely concurrent and less likely if you're a definitely monogamous partner, these odds ratios. Um, you are more likely if you've got education, more likely if you're on slightly high, higher per capita household income. But look at those AIDS origin conspiracy beliefs. You are quite a lot less likely controlling for all those characteristics, socioeconomic, type of relationship you're involved in, 
controlling for all that, you are much less likely, um, it's about a third lower, to use a condom if you also believe AIDS origin conspiracy beliefs. HIV is harmless, AR drugs are harmful, also less likely. Now that was true. You can see that African, black South Africans are more likely to use condoms than other groups, which is really interesting and very positive. Um, but if you run this uh, regression just on Africans only, you get the same story that even controlling just within that race, you will find that people who believe AIDS conspiracy beliefs are also less likely to use condoms. So these things matter. Notice the final one, uh, the, 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 bolded, the bolded lines are the statistically significant um, results there. If you've never heard of the Treatment Action Campaign, that was the civil society group that um, of civil society mobilization against Tabo and Becky during the AIDS denialist era. And if you'd never heard of them, controlling for all those other things, you were also less likely to use a condom, which shows the importance to me of civil society leadership. And I'm going to pick up on other, other aspects of leadership that are important also. So why, why, why the HIV is U.S. bioweapon story is thinkable? So where does this come from? And it's... It's important to recognize that these ideas are perfectly reasonable because Fort Detrick, which is the army base outside Washington, which is typically um, targeted in various AIDS conspiracy beliefs, was used as a facility for chemical and biological weaponry. The army tested various delivery systems on unsuspecting populations, um, and after the 1970s when these were stopped, it was turned into a cancer program where, again, the idea was, could we create a new infectious pathogen? and um, use that as a biological weapon. And Robert Gallo, who in fact was one of the people, along with Luke Montagnier, who isolated the test and the virus for HIV, was part of that program. So you can see that people think, well, we can add all of this together and say maybe this was actually created in this laboratory. There's also a history of medical abuse and uh, I'm sure Laura Bogart's going to talk much more. The Tuskegee experiment, uh, and there were covert CIA and FBI operations which targeted in particular the um, African-American civil rights groups. So this is one of the reasons why it, it resonates particularly strongly amongst African-Americans because of that particular political history. Ironically, um, the, the origin, as far as one can trace an origin for this AIDS conspiracy belief seems to have come from a real conspiracy between the KGB and the Stasi. It's written up in two independent um, biographies of these guys clubbing together and inventing a story and then just shooting it into various developing countries, starting with India, as a way of undermining U.S. hegemony. So it's, it's interesting. But once that idea is there, even when Gorbachev stopped it, said, stop doing this, by that stage, the idea was racing through the world. Also, what's interesting is how when um, the press was picking up on the, CIA, the investigations into the CIA and the FBI abuses in America during the 1970s. So here we have a picture of uh, Frank Church, who was the chairman of one of the committees into, into, the, into the CIA in particular, and he's waving a gun, which is a CIA's non-discernible microbio-inoculator. And this thing shoots a little... Um, that needle which could inject somebody with some pathogen and potentially kill them. And, and he was kind of waving this around as being an ex example of CIA abuses. And on, on the right of him is uh, that's Boyd Graves, who is one of the more 
um, important AIDS conspiracy theorists in America. He's dead now. But uh, Cleveland, you know, he was voted as one of the most influential people in Cleveland at the time for promoting the view that AIDS had been invented in Fort Detrick and also arguing that if you looked at the protocol, he's handling that protocol, that the protocol says if we are going to be designing a virus uh, as a chemical weapon, we need, to st- we need to, before we can produce it, have a cure. So he's quite sure it was made by the CIA and um, with, with scientists working with him at Fort Detrick and that there's a cure that the government was kept hiding. And he actually sued the government several times to get them to the release the cure. Anyway, if you read... His um, interviews, he claims that he was injected by HIV by a non-discernible microbiinoculator. So you can see that these ideas do resonate with what's going around, um, what's in the air at the time, both in terms of history and when he was forming his own ideas, what was happening in the press. In South Africa, we've got slightly different uh, conspiracy beliefs. This one... Influenced mainly by Vota Bassan, who was the head of the apartheid chemical and biological weapons program. Um, he was on trial from 2000 to 2001. And he, he was actually acquitted because they, the judge um, decided we couldn't link him directly to the murders, but he was essentially creating poisons and handing them to covert operators. And this was well accepted. And as you can see, uh, there was quite a lot of critical commentary in the, in the press, particularly by Zapiro, about how it really was a stinking trial and this guy was probably um, guilty. And anthropological work on the particular forms of AIDS conspiracy beliefs in South Africa highlight the different stories around um, what came out of the Basson trial. And um, there's various, various anthropological explanations about why these things resonate. So although there is a story about the HIV being created by the Americans, whenever it lands in different countries, it gets, it gets a very uh, particular local flavor to it. But, you know, this is where I think one doesn't want to stop. So, okay, one can say it's reasonable, there's historical context to it, we understand why these beliefs come from, you can't just dismiss them as irrational, they're perfectly reasonable and understandable. But what I find fascinating is that if you start looking at who's promoting these views, particularly people within the communities that have got leadership positions, then those ideas seem to get much more traction and that the role of the individual kind of ideological entrepreneur is also important. So what we have is there's just two examples here. This, the top man there with his kind of tie-dye T-shirt is a man there called uh, Leonard Horowitz who sells, and he's got his products in front of him, all of these alternative medicines. They're very expensive. They're basically vitamins. And he's constantly using conspiracy theories about everything to undermine public trust in medical science. So it's a marketing mechanism, pure marketing, like don't buy those, buy mine. And he's written several important books, including this Emerging Viruses, AIDS, and Ebola, both of which have been picked up by Louis Farrakhan, um, Nation of Islam in America, and um, Reverend Jeremiah Wright, who Laura Boyogo is going to give you a clip on. He actually walked into the press conference. He was Obama's pastor, waving a copy of the book by Horowitz. So there's these, it's really interesting to see how these entrepreneurs punting alternative cures are, are linking up with community leaders often together. And this crosses ideological divides. It's often a a mixture of right-wing and um, left-wing beliefs that are are working together in this partnership. And on on the other side is uh, William Cooper down here and um, Manto Shabalala Msimang, who was Mbeki's health minister. Um, She was 
at the time, uh, ridiculed in the press, you can see again, that's a ridiculing um, cartoon, for pushing his, well, photocopying and sending it around the African National Congress caucus, saying, look at this, this is really where HIV comes from, and that is William Cooper's book. Now, what's interesting is she was in a left-wing government that's using the state to redistribute income. That's where she's coming from. Whereas William Cooper was a sort of misogynist, racist, uh, extremist militiaman in, the, in Nevada who actually died in a gunfight with the police after refusing to pay taxes. And he genuinely believed that the United States government had been taken over by aliens and the elite and that the AIDS was basically a weapon against the people. So, again, a very strange ideological divide and crossing over. And so there have been people looking at that. They say, the sociologists say, well, this is the cultic milieu where you can borrow ideas and pull them all together. It's a sort of creative space which overcomes political and historical and cultural divides. And it's these individuals that do this. But to get onto the contestation, what that does then is it creates a space for people who fight back to say, hey, look at this. Why are we believing ideas that come from white right-wingers, for example? So one of the first people to fight AIDS conspiracy beliefs was this man, David Gilbert, who's a prisoner in the United States serving three consecutive life sentences. He went to jail for um, revolutionary activities which killed a cop linked to the Black Panthers. And he noticed that Black Panther prisoners were dying from AIDS. And he started looking at the AIDS conspiracy beliefs and decided that they were wrong and that people needed to start taking action against because he also noticed that people who believed the conspiracies were not using condoms, were injecting drugs straight into them without you know, washing the needles, etc. He decided that he needed to con confront that specifically in order to save people's lives. But he was able to do it by pointing to the connections between the white right-wingers and the conspiracy theories that were circulating in the prison. And he was also able to use his own credibility as somebody had gone to jail for the cause. It's like, I'm not part of the conspiracy behind him. So that's one example of how credibility battles really matter and how the role of individuals give, give activists space to fight back against AIDS conspiracy beliefs when they are harming people. So we also found it in South Africa. Uh, these are uh, the credibility battles over between the treatment action campaign and Mbeki. There's two pictures there of Zaki Ahmad, who is the leader of the treatment action campaign, absolutely challenging Manta Shabalala Msimang, that's the health minister, and eventually winning Nelson Mandela onto his side. So this was really all about trying to isolate politically the, the, the two individuals, Mbeki and his health minister, from, and, and discrediting them on AIDS. So they were doing it politically through the treatment action campaign, and then you also got that kind of ridiculing in the press. So we have to explore all, all avenues. You can see Zapiro is ridiculing Manta Shabalala Msimang and Mbeki in the top right-hand corner, and on the top left, um, it's stressing how isolated he is. Now, this isn't an African voice, right? This is just one person with his health minister imposing these ideas on us. So really it was an important form of contestation to prevent him from saying this is an African view against the world because he really was very isolated in his, par in his party and that's important to recognize when you, when you, when you look and try and understand um, Mbeki. So does it matter? Yes, again, look at this one. This is looking at who believes conspiracy beliefs. Data, once again, from the Cape Era panel study. 
like people more likely to endorse AIDS conspiracy beliefs that we saw from the, the simple frequencies I showed you at the beginning. But if you start controlling for things like education, household income, mental illness, um, how, how informed people are, etc., you will find very strong effects of trusting Mancha Shabalala Imsimang as a driver of AIDS conspiracy beliefs. So those people who said yes, they trusted Manso Shabalala more than her successor, who was Barbara Hogan, and you control for attitudes blacks versus whites, three times more, you were more likely to um, believe AIDS conspiracies. So again, the role of the individual leader is really important. And notice also the treatment action campaign. If you'd never heard of TAC, you were nearly twice as likely to believe AIDS conspiracies. So this again shows the importance of, of leadership from below and from above. Credibility battles were also uh, fought with, against the scientists. Uh, Peter Duisberg, both within the press and scientists themselves, fought against him. He was the one AIDS, um, AIDS denialist, uh, strong scientific background person. Here to hurry you up. Uh, okay, absolutely. And they, they fought against him in various ways, including taking actions against um, journals. I can talk more about that later, but this is my last slide. What I think is really most important in terms of the, uh, the last credibility battle I want to talk about is the activism online. So what, what you find in AIDS uh, denialism is it's organized around particular roles. So there's the hero scientist, there's also those cult entrepreneurs, those entrepreneurs that offer alternative cures. Then there's also people who claim to be living proof that people like Duisburg are right and that living on alternative medicine works. And so these living icons, the most important there was Maggie Ori. As you can see on the cover of Mothering Magazine saying she won't take antiretrovirals to prevent mother-to-child transmission prevention. She met Tabo Mbeki over here. And they are really powerful because it's like an anecdote. See, we're living fine, we don't take antidote drugs and we're fine. Except that when they die, you turn the anecdote against them. So online activists and pro-science activists, actually there's two big websites, one of which I'm involved in called AIDSTruth.org. Um, and then there's another one uh, uh, run by Seth Kalichman, as well as various people like Ben Goldacre who write Bad Science, that advertise when these people die because you then turn the anecdote against them. And I think that this plus exposés of these cult entrepreneurs, um, um, Ben Goldacre is very good at exposing these alternative cure people who use AIDS conspiracy theories as a marketing campaign uh, to combat conspiratorial move against science. So there, there is, this is not a scientific way of contesting AIDS conspiracy theories, but it's certainly working um, at the level of credibility, and it's taking their own ideas, see I'm living proof, and turning it against them. I'll stop there. A book up so people can see it, <laughs> which is being sold outside, and then you'll come up here and sign copies. Apparently, I've got an instruction to tell you that you'll sign them up here rather than outside. All right, and who's next? It's, it's Heidi, isn't it? Where's Heidi? Yes. I'm going to be a bit fiercer with you on time, because you've only come from the School of Hygiene rather than from South Africa. What do we do with this? Do we just go there? I think so. Hopefully. Uh, yeah. Is that yours? Yes. Do you want this? Uh, I think they have this... And up and down the... Oh, just here. 
That's a good one to start. Um, I'm going to talk about why conspiracies matter, but it's already been introduced. Um, I think, as uh, Nicolay said, they have impact. Otherwise, they'd be interesting belief systems. But from our perspective, particularly about health in Africa, what we care about is the impact they're having. Um, I'm particularly going to be talking about vaccines, but one of the things I'll uh, – a lot of the points transfer across different uh, – different conspiracies. Well, there's one of the things we do. I, I lead a, a research team at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine called the Vaccine Confidence Project, and we track outbreaks. We've set up a global surveillance system that is like a disease outbreak surveillance system, but we're tracking rumor outbreaks. We follow them. We see where they collect. We see where they get traction. We see where a leader picks them up and runs with them. Um, and they may start with a little piece of misinformation, a rumor here, a rumor there, and then they can build into conspiracies and have broader impact. I was looking for a, a definition. Um, it's really it's quite interesting. Conspiracy has a very derogatory negative um, tone. Here they talk about it's a wrongful or subversive. It has legal implications, and it's sinister, um, Wikipedia, interestingly, doesn't really have a definition of conspiracy. It just has conspiracy theory, which they refer to as a term frequently used by scholars because of the word theory, I, I imagine, to identify um, secret military banking political actions aimed at stealing power, money, or freedom from the people. And in our research on vaccines, uh, a lot of the biomedical community thinks that people's beliefs about vaccines and concerns and refusals are about the safety of vaccine. But in our research on vaccine confidence, actually, there's a certain portion that's about safety, but there's a much bigger portion of it that's about libertarianism, about my having a choice, about don't tell me what to do. And it's about requirements. It's about compulsory. It's about schedules. Um, so a lot of it is, where is my right, my individual freedom, and what are you telling me what to do? And that fear gets more and more intense the more marginalized a population is, the more vulnerable a population is. Their vulnerability to conspiracy theory, to fears, to concerns, goes up as vulnerability goes down. And put, combine that with leadership, it becomes a, a real issue. This is, I, I love this picture, the vaccination monster. We didn't invent conspiracies and particularly around vaccines. A lot of people say, oh, it's because of the Internet. Well, it's not because of the Internet. Things move quicker with the Internet. They're more globalized. Um, but with the invention of the vaccine, the discovery of the vaccine by Edward Jenner in the early 1800s, the smallpox vaccine immediately came with it um, fears, concerns the public thinking it was a big monster. And why? Not because of the safety, which was actually not an extremely safe vaccine at the time, um, but the threat of smallpox loomed much larger. It was the National Anti-Compulsory Vaccination League, not the Anti-Vaccination League. They talk about the exceeding wickedness of the compulsory vaccination laws and other medical legislation connected with it. So it's not the exceedingly wicked, exceeding wickedness of the vaccine, but of the compulsory law, the medical legislation, 
And I think that's one of the aspects that affects the, the conspiracy and drives some conspiracy theories. One of the most common um, in the history of vaccines and vaccine concerns and conspiracies is the conspiracy that vaccines are out to control populations. In the history of vaccines from tetanus, HIV, um, they, they are either out to reduce populations or another common one is linked with uh, cause AIDS. And that's obviously more recent um, since we didn't identify AIDS until HIV and AIDS until the early 1980s. Um, that is a big concern. And again, it fits into the same uh, concern about vulnerable populations feeling afraid of authority powers. And in places, certain places in the world, uh, like in parts of India where they had forced sterilization and population campaigns, there are seeds of truth. And as um, Nicolay was saying, there are pieces of, of real information out there. And where it becomes con cons conspirational or whatever is when they start connecting the dots. Um, the other thing that we see a lot with uh, con with conspiracies around vaccines is that they often link with other conspiracies, major conspiracies about um, genetically modified organ organisms, GMO foods, food crops here. Um, it, it also relates to reproductive health issues and others, but they often converge, often with the same driver of, of fear of, of being dominated. This was in one of my favorite websites called naturalnews.com, whose tagline is, real news powered by the people naturally. Um, that's, that's my other favorite group is the homeopaths who, um, anyway, that's another lecture. Um, uh, WHO wants to control the world's health. Not help the world's health, but control it. It wants to restructure the global health system and place itself in control with certain mechanisms in place first, that goes back to the exceeding wickedness we heard about before, um, and WHO wants all nations to give up their sovereignty so WHO can say the world will now eradicate polio, whether you really need it or not, in their mind. But then they get on to the part that it's not just about WHO. WHO's agenda is part of the UN's agenda of world domination through other means, Blue helmets is their favorite, uh, for example. So this is, again, fits into a hierarchy of, of conspiracies about domination, about control, about powerlessness. <coughs> I'm going to give three examples um, of specific issues with conspiracies and fears with vaccines and their impacts on health. Tetanus, polio, and the pandemic uh, flu. Tetanus, this was in the 1990s. Um, again, uh, the link between tetanus vaccines and population control, uh, I mean, the tetanus vaccine targets particularly girls of reproductive age, so there's already that suspicion, why just girls, why that age? Um, tetanus has other, um, other preventive values. But this particular... Um, one on the top I've put here is about, it happened at the time where there was new research that came out about the Depo-Provera, the contraceptive vaccine, unfortunately they called it a vaccine, and in that research was the reference to something called a tetanus toxoid, 
which in the minds of some, they made the link with the tetanus vaccine, sat down at their computer, and this concern about vaccines sterilizing went out through a pro-life network um, that was pro-life, a Catholic group, to 60 countries around the world. And it jumped from Mexico to uh, the Philippines to Tanzania and Bolivia with specific movements. And as Nicolae said, it was because the place where it exploded in terms of rumors and fears was where a leader picked it up and put it at the podium and started to influence the beliefs of the people. In the case of uh, Manila, it was the mayor of Manila banned tetanus vaccine. And here's a, a We'll look at what happened. In 1993, the coverage with tetanus vaccines was 70% coverage, and the, this whole episode came up in around 94, and then by 95, it was down to 47, and uh, sorry, 57, and down to 47%. So, I mean, this was for the whole country, but the, I don't have the statistics here for Manila, but it had a more dramatic impact in Manila. But again, it was the mayor who took that on and made it his business to not allow anybody to have them. In the, in the, the pandemic uh, flu conspiracies, there was all kinds of, uh, as I'm sure anyone who's read the newspaper um, has seen, I mean, I, I just moved to this country about that time and I saw the first headline was that Londoners would be 100,000 Londoners would be killed by pig flu by the time I was about to end my contract, so I was hoping I'd survive through it. But at any rate, um, it looks like I'll be here longer, and the pandemic flu didn't, uh, didn't kill that many people. Uh, but there, was clear, there, was, there were major uh, conspiracies that WHO was increasing the, the announcement of the threat the pandemic threat, because they were fueled by the, by the industry and getting pressure from the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and in the end, the vaccine was not available at the, at the time of the biggest fear. And globally, uh, this one I like also, globally there were, it wasn't just a, a Western phenomenon. In remote corners of India and, and Africa, there was refusals also. But this was swine flu brought to you by Big Pharma and the World Health Organization. Um, and what happened was that they were globally, we're just starting to get the data on it, um, but uh, seven, only 17% uh, acceptance in this group in Israel. In India, where they had very little, they had not as much vaccine as they wanted, so they prioritized health workers, and only 80% of them refused. And 80% of them, this is in Mumbai, but I also know in Gujarat, they had the same problem. Uh, this was the research article on the top was about another group. Right now we're starting to investigate the reasons, but a striking refusal at all level. And one of the issues that happens also is when you start to get doctors refusing, that's not very encouraging for the rest of the population. The problem with this is, to me, this is a big wake-up call and why conspiracies matter in this case, is we are absolutely going to get another pandemic. It may be more severe. And if the the world's trust level in this kind of vaccine is what it demonstrated there, we were lucky not to have the impact. But we'll be in big trouble if this is the trust level in the world right now for pandemic vaccines. 
polio has been in a lot of a lot of the news and has been a has really been quite a huge victim of um, of conspiracy theory. In 2003-2004 in northern Nigeria, um, a big conspiracy theory was, and this was had a lot of political um, reasons. The leaders in the uh, there was a big uh, presidential campaign, and the candidate from the north, the marginalized, dominantly Muslim, poorer north, lost to the candidate in the south. The president, the winner, wanted to Im- impress his uh, peers, other presidents around the world, in the global effort to eradicate polio. He went to uh, WHO in Geneva, shook hands, said, I'm going to go back to Nigeria and uh, make sure that Nigeria eradicates polio. And nobody wanted to make him look good from the north, that was for sure. It was also a time when the U.S. uh, went into Iraq, another um, Western power against Islam and U.S. was providing the vaccines, which, by the way, the vaccine boxes, I learned, and I was told by someone there, and I'd never thought of this before, look, Dr. Heidi, the box says sterile. We're not stupid. Um, uh, It was one of many eye-opening comments I heard on on that trip. Um, But again, it was the governor of, well, it was five states in northern Nigeria that started the boycott, Kano State was the one who persisted for 11 months. And again, it was the leader who, the leadership that, that really kept the people um, hostage to their belief system. And in some cases in, in Kano State, we had some reports of women actually smuggling their children to relatives in another state because they actually were concerned about their kids. Um, but these are, this is, next year will be a decade since the boycott, and we are still seeing the impacts. This is, um, you can see the, the condensed area of blue dots. This is the consequence of the uh, boycott, the 11-month boycott, and which then spread. One of the things about the polio eradication initiative, it is highly sophisticated tracking of where viruses come from. We have, and this, um, the lines here totally coincide with the Hajj pilgrimage. So some of the Nigerian strains tagged that came from, from Kano and Nigeria went via Mecca and made it down to their, um, their peers in, in Indonesia. This is all because of a rumor. It was not because of vaccine safety. It was because of a belief system. It was a conspiracy about against fears of the West, fears of domination. And interestingly, I was uh, heading up global communication for immunization at UNICEF at the time and worked closely with the executive director who came into my office one day and put this massive pile of papers and said, here, this is their reason. And we had gotten a, a, a dossier from northern Nigeria, which included, by the way, a, a whole section on tetanus vaccine and sterilization. Everything that had happened with the, the, ninth, the decade earlier was in there. See, told you so. It's in that vaccine. It must be in ours, too. Another section was about the U.S. population control policies. So it was a, a conspiracy. It was a combination of unrelated but related. Um, this is uh, the other one that I had put on, whoops, here was in Pakistan. We're now, that's another area which is um, the, 
three persisting countries where we have dealing with um, the last uh, parts of polio are, are Nigeria, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. But because of these rumors, children are missing uh, vaccination, and I'm sure you've heard the the, um, the newspaper here broke the story about the U.S. using a CIA uh, hiring a local doctor to fake a vaccination campaign to go into um, bin Laden's compound to confirm that actually it was him before they went in. And that did not, it wasn't really a very wise move for health, and it has created all kinds of um, refusals, anxieties, and has fed cons- conspiracy, actually. And personally, from my point of view, we worked very hard in northern, northern Nigeria to dispel rumors of CIA involvement, and this is going to make the job, as this Time article says, it's going to be an increasingly tough sell once we see that the CIA actually did it. So again, this is the kind of thing that may not have an impact the next week, but will feed the minds and not go away. I, this is one of my, this is my last slide is, I, this is a recent thing that I, well, I discovered it recently. It's a rap song. You can go to the web, www.vaccinezombie.com, or it's, it's on YouTube. Forgive me. It's on YouTube. Uh, I can't even start to, to imitate the song, but it's got fantastic um, dance steps with it. But anyway, the whole thing is about the same sense of powerlessness, do what you say, I don't have any mind of my own, Um, it's my turn to be injected, they say I'll be protected, I'll do as I'm directed, I'd never do something unexpected, oh, I forgot to think for myself, I don't understand a thing about health, I just do the same as everybody else, I'm a vaccine zombie. Picks up on the theme we heard in 1808. Anyway, this is um, our Vaccine Confidence Project website. You, the little dots on the map change every day. We're tracking rumors, and you can see the emergence of conspiracies. Oops. Thanks. Thank you. Melissa, you're next. I'm going to be fiercer with you because we're married. Tim and I have been asked to talk about conspiracy theories and the distrust of health programs uh, in relation to our work on neglected tropical diseases. And one of the points we'd like to highlight today is that in the arena of global health, it's almost always other people who have conspiracy theories, not ourselves. The use of the term has become a way, if you like, of othering people, suggesting they have suspicions and superstitions that run counter to sensible, logic and rational ways of thinking. They are, as Evans Pritchard said of the Azandi witchcraft beliefs, trapped in a web of knowledge that allows for no other explanations and also, rather satisfactorily, explains almost everything. The significance of this point emerged when Tim and I were doing fieldwork in 2005 on tropical diseases in Panyamal, 
a village on the Uganda-Congo border with our two children. In common with the Azandi, it quickly became apparent that ideas about witchcraft played a central role in central life. Our children were intrigued about why it was that people believed in the work of witches in Panyamal, while the topic was consigned to storybooks in England. So while we were out and about in the marketplace and hanging out with fishermen discussing tropical diseases, they were often to be found in the chief's compound discussing whether or not witches really existed. They seemed to be convincing the chief that witches had little place in British life until one day we came back from a day's fieldwork to find they had exhausted their conversation with the chief and decided to teach his children how to play Quidditch. The chief was horrified. Witchcraft is not an appropriate game, even for children. But he was also excited. He finally had proof that our children knew about witches. Indeed, they were even reading 100-page books about how to pass exams so they could enter a school of wizardry. So what has all this got to do with conspiracy theories and distrust of public health programs seeking to control neglected tropical diseases? For those of you unfamiliar with the topic, vast sums of money have been pouring into the control of tropical diseases in recent years. The Gates Foundation, for example, have donated $400 million towards the control of NTDs. USAID have donated more than $350 million in recent years towards the control of these diseases. And last January, the UK Department for International Development announced plans to spend £250 million on the NTDs over a period of five years. Now, this term, neglected tropical diseases or NTDs, includes diseases such as soil-transmitted helminths, as you can see up here, schistosomiasis, more popularly known as bilharzia, Uh, onchocerasis, otherwise known as river blindness, and lymphatic filariasis, which some of you may know as elephantiasis. All these diseases cause significant morbidity, if not mortality, among politically and economically marginal populations living in tropical and subtropical environments. The provision of funds from international agencies and the provision of free drugs from pharmaceutical companies has provided for the first time an opportunity to both design and implement national control programs, primarily in sub-Saharan Africa. All programs involve the mass distribution of drugs free of charge to adults and children living in areas where the diseases are endemic, irrespective of whether or not they are actually infected. And there's a huge amount of optimism about the impact that NTD control can have for poor, neglected populations. Thus, Professor David Molyneux and colleagues writes, Controlling Africa's neglected tropical diseases is one of the most convincing ways to make poverty history. Sachs and Sachs say, Controlling the NTDs is nothing less than healing the world. More soberly, the Director General of the WHO had this to say, NTDs weaken impoverished populations and frustrate the achievements of the health-related Millennium Development Goals. The logic has changed. Instead of waiting for these diseases to disappear as countries develop, a deliberate effort to make them disappear is now viewed as a route to poverty alleviation that can itself spur socio-economic development. So Tim and I have been working on programs attempting to control schistosomiasis 
soil-transmitted helminths and lymphatic filariasis in Uganda and Tanzania since 2005. Alongside a group of parasitologists, vector biologists, statisticians from Imperial College, as well as colleagues from the Ministry of Health in Uganda and Tanzania. And one of the things our work has done has highlighted an enormous disjuncture between these kinds of global rhetorics, suggesting that mass treatment will alleviate sickness, ill health and poverty among poor and marginal groups, and local realities, in which drug drug uptake is actually very mixed, and consequently the programs are having very mixed effects on endeavours to control or eradicate neglected tropical diseases. In the short time available, I'm just going to primarily focus on some of the work that we have done on lymphatic filariasis in Tanzania and a little bit on the work on schistosomiasis in Uganda, in part to highlight that where we have found low drug uptake, there is also widespread fear, distrust, and a questioning of the rationale for mass treatment. And this has led to the resistance to accept free treatment and in some cases, violent unrest. Importantly, and most significantly, there's been reluctance to respond to the difficulties identified. Instead, what's happened is that mass treatment has been upscaled at great speed, and it's increasingly being promoted as a sort of context-free medical magic bullet, similar to the selective primary healthcare interventions of the mid to late 1980s. In addition, endeavours to analyse the difficulties arising and to suggest amendments to existing policies has fuelled ferocious responses, with senior academics and policymakers denouncing our research in biomedical journals as, I quote, ethically negligent, cynical, disrespectful to Africans, neo-colonial, and potentially a disservice to the poor. We are, in fact, not the only academics to be treated in such a way. Professor Bruno Griesels, director of the Institute for Tropical Medicine in Antwerp, wrote a letter to the the Financial Times in 2006 outlining his concerns with mass treatment programs, highlighting in particular the possible emergence of drug resistance to frontline drugs and the likelihood that mass treatment programs might undermine endeavours to develop comprehensive, sustainable um, health services. The response by African advocates of mass treatment was ferocious. In the same newspaper they wrote, and I quote, Griesel's position from an African perspective is is unethical and a violation of the fundamental right to health and contrary to the health policy of African countries. So why then is the work of both biological and social sciences discussing the complexities and limitations of mass treatment programs generating such a ferocious response. Let us turn to the data. This is just a quick map of the multiple sites we've worked, and I'm particularly focusing on northeastern coastal Tanzania and northwestern Uganda. Uh, In Uganda, we found that the levels of drug uptake amongst targeted populations fell well short of the recommended levels by the World Health Organization. So here in Panyamore, this is you know, a random sample of households asking people whether or not they've received the treatment and if they have, if they've swallowed it. Those who've actually received the treatment rarely reach the WHO target of a 75% coverage level. Similarly, in northeastern coastal Tanzania, the uptake of drugs fell well short of the recommended coverage levels 
for the control of uh, lymphatic filariasis. They're looking for a coverage level of 80 to 90% over six continuous years. And this snapshot of our data shows very clearly that, in fact, uh, it rarely doesn't, in any, in any particular place, rise above 50%. So why, then, are people rejecting treatment? Well, drawing upon insights emerging from participants' observation and interviews and so on, uh, it was clear that a crucial issue was widespread fear and distrust of the treatment. So in Tanzania, these are very typical sorts of comments. In this village, we cry for water. They haven't brought water for free, but they've brought drugs for free. Why? These free drugs have to be an experiment. That is why I reject them. Or they are afraid. They say if you're infected and you take the drug, your penis will never uh, erect again. Uh, plays into ideas of the etiology of lymphatic filariasis being a sexually transmitted infection rather than one carried by a mosquito. And then, again, a very common theme linked to concerns about um, family planning and so on. People from the rich countries send us this drug to reduce our malehood energy and to make us infertile because the Wazungu, white people, were fed up giving us help. Now, these kinds of fears and anxieties with mass treatment coming from northeastern coastal Tanzania resonated across many of our research sites, not only in Tanzania, but also in parts of Uganda. And in fact, in 2008, it provoked riots. One of my PhD students had to be rescued uh, by armed police from her field site in Morogoro uh, when some of the school teachers were handing out tablets for the treatment of uh, schistosomiasis to school children. Now here's a picture of the building that was destroyed in those riots. So one cannot underestimate the, the, the scale and the depth of feeling um, of the fears and the anxieties linked to the free distribution of drugs for tropical diseases. Among other things, these, these fears highlight divergence between biomedical understandings of diseases such as lymphatic filariasis and schistosomiasis, and local understandings of disease and illness. So with respect to lymphatic filariasis, it's interesting to note that there is actually no Swahili word for the disease. Instead, there are two local words, mabusha, which refers to enlarged scrotums, uh, and matende, swollen limbs, which are perceived to have very different sorts of etiologies, very different sorts of diseases do not in any way relate to biomedical approaches. Uh, and a, a real issue, I guess, is that the very limited communication that there is from coming from healthcare providers simply reinforces existing ideas of etiology. So these sorts of questions aren't being able to be answered effectively by those handing out the tablets. And they're very common questions that people are very worried by. Why should I take these tablets when I feel well? Why do the tablets need to be taken by everyone once a year? How can one drug protect someone from two different afflictions, reference to Mabusha and Matende? Well, I took the drugs last year. The swelling didn't go down. Why should I take them now? Uh, and again, in uh, northwestern Uganda, uh, an, an issue that would come up would be, well, what's the point of taking these drugs? I'm just going to go back into the lake and be reinfected again. There must be some other reason about why these drugs are being distributed. 
One might imagine then that academics and policymakers might respond to the information highlighting resistance to mass treatment with vigorous endeavours to communicate with those on the receiving end of these programmes. But strangely, this isn't the case. While the language deployed does not actually say that people are ignorant or that they are stupid for declining treatment, the refusal to provide funds to enable communication to occur conveys, we think, a rather dismissive attitude to those being treated. And this point was brought home to me when I was at a closed meeting with funders. During the meeting, it was pointed out to a member of staff from a major donor that more than 80% of the coastal population were unaware that the mosquitoes were a vector of lymphatic filariasis, even after multiple rounds of treatment. And the response was simply to state, well, there's no point funding health education, as it never really works, and it's not necessary for poor, uneducated Africans to understand how parasitic diseases affect their bodies. They simply have to know how to swallow them safely. Now, while it's obviously hard to explain complex life cycles to anyone because these disease, parasitic diseases are very complicated creatures, the lack of engagement with local populations undoubtedly fuels rumours and conspiratorial thinking for some very good reasons. So first, in a hospital context, they're told only to take tablets once a particular disease has been diagnosed, but in another context, they're told to take tablets even if they feel well and they don't think they're infected because you can be asymptomatic for these infections but infected. A second issue is they're often advised in hospitals and clinics to only take tablets from medically trained professionals rather than untrained local healers. And yet here we have a program which is distributing drugs through school teachers and volunteers who have no medical training whatsoever. And there's a real disjuncture and a concern there. And third, the information that they're given about the diseases and the drugs is often confusing and very muddled. Here we have a picture of children. They've just been given the treatment for schistosomiasis, uh, been treated with prasoquantel, but the health education leaflets they were given to go with the treatment was actually for soil-transmitted helminths. So we're trying to work out what they might have been treated for. It's very confusing and generates a lot of concern. And another real issue is that treatment doesn't necessarily leave people feeling better. Uninfected people are obviously not going to feel any better or worse than they felt before they took the treatment. And many infected people, particularly if they have lymphatic filariasis, the swellings might not necessarily go down. You might still have very swollen scrotums or very swollen legs. So they have empirical evidence that they see daily of these drugs not necessarily working. So people are essentially they're making empirical observations about the impact of treatment, or rather the lack of impact. And in some cases, these fears and anxieties lead to riots, as they did in Tanzania in 2008, in which several teachers and drug distributors were actually beaten. Revealingly, this was described by some policymakers as rumour-mongering and simply betrayed the ignorance of target populations, rather than leading to any sort of reflection of the manifest inadequacies of the public health programme. So what can we conclude from all of this about conspiracy theories and distrust in health programs? Well, clearly, assuming that mass treatment can, can be rolled out in Africa without an intensive engagement with the target populations is counterproductive and peculiar. And it's hardly surprising that people question the underlying rationale for mass drug programs. 
The basic problem seems to lie with the mass treatment programs themselves. Which leads to one last point, one that takes us back to the story of Harry Potter and Quidditch. What about the conspiracy theories of those running mass treatment programs? And what about real conspiracies? The moral language used by those promoting context-free mass treatment suggests a closed way of thinking and a rejection of empirical realities that seem obvious to others. But those designing and running mass treatment programs uh, are intelligent people. At one level, they know there is a problem. In private, they talk openly about some of the difficulties that arise. So what is actually going on? Is there some kind of cognitive dissonance? That's certainly a possibility. But but here, maybe, we perhaps reveal our own conspiracy theory. Huge amounts of money are now being poured into the control of neglected tropical diseases through a handful of gatekeepers. The positive quotes that I highlighted at the beginning of this talk about the benefits of mass treatment are actually from those receiving massive grants. It seems reasonable to suppose that one motivation then is to actually sustain closed thinking, set aside the evidence, set aside what is obvious, and thereby keep control of the funds. Running a bit late, Laura, but you've got your videos as well, haven't you? This one? Good evening, and thanks for staying late for the last presentation, and I hope we can have some good discussion afterwards, and thanks for inviting me here. So I was invited here today to give the U.S. perspective on all of this and talk about mistrust in the U.S. and conspiracy beliefs in the U.S. So we've already covered mistrust in the last few presentations. Um, General mistrust, just a general belief or suspicion about medical treatments, um, information advanced by healthcare providers and the medical system, as well as a mistrust of science. And that's really what we're talking about, what's behind all of these kinds of conspiracy beliefs. And today I'm going to focus my talk specifically on HIV conspiracy beliefs or HIV-related mistrust. And that's, um, Nicolay's already talked about what this is, rejection of mainstream information about HIV's origins and treatments, such as that HIV is man-made, the treatments are poison, beliefs such as this. And what I wanted to talk about partly today is how in U.S. culture this is mainstream. These kinds of beliefs have infused themselves into the mainstream through partially the black mainstream culture. And this is seen in music, it's seen in sermons on Sundays. It's, it's seen all throughout U.S. culture, but it's not always talked about that much. So I wanted to play you a clip from Kanye West, who's a very famous American rapper, singer, producer, has won awards, and he's given speeches about these kinds of beliefs, and he's also put in conspiracy beliefs in some of his songs. So if I can get the audio to work.
wanted to live and she trying I'm arguing like what kind of doctor can we find You know the best medicine go to people that's paid Nancy Thompson got a cure for AIDS and all the bro So that was just a demonstration of a frequent belief that we hear in communities in the U.S. and African-American communities that, well, not only is HIV man-made, but also rich people get the cure, people, poor people don't. So it's not necessarily a racialized thing. It's that Magic Johnson, who's black, has been living with HIV for years. He looks healthy in Los Angeles. He's all over billboards advertising HIV clinics. And people say, well, look, well, what's he got um, that we haven't? You know, it's because he's rich. That's why he looks so healthy. So in the U.S., these kinds of beliefs, some um, conspiracy beliefs, mistrust, were kind of brought to the forefront in the 2008 presidential campaign. So four years ago, when um, Nicholas already talked about Jeremiah Wright, who was Obama's pastor in Chicago, and it came to light during the campaign that he had said some of these beliefs in his sermons. And so there was an uproar about this. And I think it was almost a wake-up call, really, to white America, who said, we didn't know that these beliefs exist, and, and really got it to the forefront to a, a national dialogue. And here's one of his sermons that, that had been broadcast around over TV. The next clip I wanted to play you is, he was asked then, well, why did you say this? So people on the news, he had a news conference, and he was asked about these kinds of beliefs, and people were saying, where did this come from? In your sermon, you said the government lied about inventing the HIV virus as a means of genocide against people of color. So I ask you, do you honestly believe your statement and those words? Have you read Horowitz's book, Emerging Viruses, AIDS, and Ebola? Who ever wrote that question? Have you read Medical Apartheid? You read it? You honestly... No questions from the floor. I read different things, as I said to my members. If you haven't read things that you can't... Yeah, based on the Tuskegee... Experiment and based on what has happened to Africans in this country, I believe our government is capable of doing anything. In fact, in fact, in fact, one of the one of the uh, responses to what Saddam Hussein had in terms of uh, biological warfare was a non-question because all we had to do was check the sales records. We sold him those biological weapons that he was using against his own people. So any time a government can put together biological warfare to kill people and then get angry when those people use what we sold them, yes, I believe we are capable. Okay, so I wanted to use that clip to demonstrate some of what's already been covered today, especially talked about by Nicoli, and how there is a kernel of truth to these beliefs. And there is a reason for these beliefs in, in the U.S. with medical experimentation, such as Tus the Tuskegee um, syphilis study. And there is a reason. There's been medical experimentation. There was segregation in health care. Now a legacy of that is residential segregation and poverty among African-American and urban populations. So there are reasons for this. And also, 
the government has not always told the truth. So people seize upon that and then go further with it to these kinds of beliefs and to this kind of mistrust and to the extent that we get people not getting vaccinated, people not taking HIV treatments, and people not getting tested. So how prevalent is mistrust in the U.S.? And this is a survey I did. It's actually almost 10 years ago, although we're still finding these kinds of results when we're doing surveys today. This is of African Americans in the United States and all the states. Um, and what we did is we asked people nine different conspiracy beliefs and beliefs related to mistrust. And here's a sampling. And we saw how prevalent are they in the general population of African Americans. And as an aside, we didn't give this survey to whites as well because prior surveys had done that, prior smaller scale surveys and prior in my own research. And we found that whites didn't understand the question and hadn't heard of these and didn't know why we were asking them. And so few were endorsing them that it wasn't a relevant question as much. So we decided to focus this study on African-Americans. And so, for example, almost half thought that HIV was man-made. And this is focusing on your left on the red bar and the dark orange bar are the percent who slightly or strongly agreed. Um, over half thought there's a cure from HIV, but it's being withheld from the poor. That's kind of the Magic Johnson conspiracy that we're now finding as well. Um, almost 60% thought there's information about HIV withheld from the public. 44% thought that people who use medications for HIV are human guinea pigs for the government. And finally, 27% thought that HIV was produced in a government lab. And what are the consequences of mistrust? So we've documented that mistrust exists. We've seen it in different populations, in different countries, and, and, and different kinds of beliefs, but they're all rooted in mistrust. And what we found um, in general public samples, so this is general public of African Americans in the US, but this has also been documented in South Africa and other places. So people who believe these kinds of conspiracies and mistrust have, are less likely to have ever been tested for HIV, have more sexual partners, and use condoms inconsistently. So it, what it suggests is that people are reluctant to believe um, public health messages, or they're closed to public health messages around HIV. And among people living with HIV, which is where I've started to focus my research, um, we found a host of different health consequences, including not taking antiretroviral treatment, um, being more likely to go to the emergency room and more emergency room visits, which suggests that people wait for much longer because they mistrust health care, so they go until it's almost too late and they're too sick, and they don't have routine health care providers. Um, also have worse physical and mental health, which goes along with the emergency room results, and also inconsistent condom use. And what this means, at least in the U.S., um, ultimately disparities in survival, because levels of mistrust are so much higher among African Americans than whites. This is just going to widen disparities as these behavior, um, less healthful behaviors among African Americans partially as a result of mistrust. So um, one of my studies, I'm going to try to talk quickly and try to get through this, but one of my newest studies is looking at how is mistrust spread. So knowing we've documented it, we know it can or probably does have harmful health consequences. Now what happens, um, how do you hear mistrust? Um, where does it come from? Does it come from the internet? Is it social? Well, what we did is we asked people their social networks. So we asked them to, um, for their 20 closest people in their social network, who they talked with, who they related to most frequently in the past year. And then once we documented their social network and the ties between everybody in their network, 
We then gave them a list of different beliefs about HIV, both accurate and conspiracy belief type beliefs and mistrust, as well as um, inaccurate beliefs, as well as accurate beliefs, like HIV knowledge. And so what specifically we wanted to see is how are these beliefs flowing through social networks among African Americans living with HIV? So what we did is then we looked at what is the proportion of people in their network who are saying these kinds of beliefs, who are saying mistrust, who are saying conspiracy beliefs, and how is that relating to their behavior and who is saying these beliefs? So one finding we had is those people who said that a higher proportion of people in their network were discussing these beliefs, were saying these beliefs with them, those were the people in our study who were most likely to believe in mistrust and conspiracies. We also found that people who had a higher proportion of alters or people in their network who discussed these kinds of beliefs and conspiracy beliefs were more likely to have, high, have networks with a high proportion of people who were HIV positive, a high proportion of people who they used drugs with or shared drugs with. And just to talk about the positive result, we found qualitatively in talking with them in other parts of the survey as well, we found that these were mostly people in support groups and unfacilitated support groups where people were coming together, talking about their treatment, giving different theories. So, which suggests, and I'll get to that intervention point to talk about maybe we should facilitate these kinds of conversations. Also, interestingly, we found that conspiracy beliefs were related to the structure of the social network. So that if you had a network where there were a few key people who controlled information, who, had, who a lot of the paths flowed through, so a lot of the people knew a few key people in the network, those were the networks where there was more efficient information flow around the conspiracies, where people were hearing the conspiracies and they were more, um, and those were the ones where there was just more conspiracies in the network. So um, an interesting behavioral consequence we found is that people with a higher proportion of alters who discussed any HIV-related conspiracy were less likely to be taking antiretroviral treatment as well. And we found that three key beliefs, when we looked at what were the beliefs that were being spread that, that were most likely to be related to not being on treatment, was HIV was created in a government lab, AIDS is a form of genocide, and people who take antiretroviral treatment are human guinea pigs for the government. So people who believed these were less likely, people who heard these in their network were less likely to actually be on treatment. I do want to say a very small proportion of the sample was actually not on treatment because most people were on treatment in, in our sample. I think it was about 26 people who weren't, so the confidence intervals are rather large, but still we're finding some inkling of this. So just very briefly, I want to talk about the way forward and solutions because one thing I get asked, um, sometimes I'm asked to give talks in communities and frontline workers in HIV who say, you know, we're going out, we're trying to test people, or we're going out, we're trying to get people on treatment, and we keep hearing these beliefs. And people will say, I'm not taking that test. Um, HIV tests will give me HIV. Don't you know that? Or I'm not taking medications. They're poison. I've heard they're poison. So people will come to me and say, well, what do we tell them? And so, so I've pretty much said, well, you know, I know I've documented that these beliefs exist. I've documented that they are related to behaviors. But I haven't really looked at, and no one's really looked at, what do we do? What do we do about these beliefs? So I've started two different studies and intervention studies to look at how do we counteract these kinds of beliefs. So I don't have results yet, but I'd like to talk to you a little bit about solutions and possible ways forward. And one thing that, that I thought about after I saw the results on people talking about these beliefs in support groups is that 
We need to create tools for people in communities, people who are giving tests, running the groups, trying to give people treatments, so healthcare providers and people um, working with healthcare providers, to actually use tools to how do we discuss these beliefs. Because when I've asked people in communities, well, what do you say when somebody says this? They'll say, well, I change the subject, or I tell them that they're wrong, or you know, I just tell them the, um, they need to take these, these medications, they need to take the test. And we know that telling someone to do something doesn't necessarily work, usually doesn't work if you tell someone they're wrong and they should do it your way. So, so one approach might be to use more of a motivational interviewing style, which is a counseling style that's more empathetic versus confrontational, and talking to people and meeting them where they are. And, and so as we talked about with Reverend Wright, and as Reverend Wright talked about, you know, there is a history of discrimination in, this con- in, in the U.S., and we know that there's segregation, we know that there are issues, we know that the government has not always told the truth and there has been medical experimentation. So by starting the conversation there and telling people we know this, we know that there's mistrust, and we know that this that mistrust is a consequence of discrimination, and that that racism actually is something that's a big stressor in people's lives that people face every day, even on a small level, and not just in healthcare. So small level, large level, but it's there. It's a stressor, and to talk with people about that as a starting point, and and that validates the mistrust as a survival strategy if people haven't always been told the truth, if there's been a history of experimentation, then it's actually a natural survival strategy not to trust, not to be so willing to trust everything right away, but also talking about how we need to get past that. And one thing that motivational interviewing does very well is talks about ambivalence and lets people see the ambivalence in their actions and their beliefs and their behaviors and, and talking through that, but letting people see that on their own and come to their own conclusion really is what motivational interviewing can do. So, for example, which I'll talk about um, very quickly in another study we're doing with people living with HIV who have mistrust as a barrier to taking their medications. But they're all people who have been to the doctor who are on medications. So talking through that, there actually there is a way in, there is an opening, because even if they're saying they're not taking the medication because they don't trust it, well, they did go to the doctor. They did trust something about health care. Or they did um, fill a prescription for medication, even if they're not sure about it. So there's an opening to create a dialogue, because they're not completely shutting the door to health care and medications. And trying to find that opening in people and then use that to create the dialogue around mistrust. So I'm, let's see, I'm doing a couple studies now. One is testing this motivational interviewing approach, but I'm not going to go too much into it. I'll talk about the other study, which is using a separate kind of approach that's more cognitive behavioral. So it's using a separate approach from psychology. And it's, it's looking at mistrust and conspiracies from a different angle. And this study is about support groups that, that work on coping with discrimination. And we're doing support groups for HIV-positive black men living with HIV. Most who are men, are, men who have sex with men or MSM. And what we're doing is talking with them about discrimination and how they cope and actually using a cognitive behavioral approach to break down their emotional and behavioral responses to what happens when they're faced with discrimination. To think about, well, when you're discriminated against, what's your reaction? And starting there. And if they talk about their reaction is mistrust, I was discriminated against, I don't trust anyone, I'm gonna, you know, I'm not gonna take my medications, or I don't trust the doctor, or the receptionist was racist, you know, starting there and seeing what their response was. What we do is, 
when they talk about mistrust as a coping response, we talk with them about mistrust and where that might lead them and saying, well, if mistrust leads you to not take medications, where does that lead you to? Does that help? Does that hurt the doctor that's probably hurting yourself? So kind of meeting people where they are and getting people to think through all the steps to where does mistrust lead you and where can mistrust lead you to poor health behaviors that actually hurt you? And, and thinking about what's a more adaptive coping response, such as going support-seeking and talking with people and spirituality, things like that. So I wanted to just leave you with the role of leaders because that's kind of been a theme throughout all of our talks and, and talking about solutions, is that, that we can talk about, as I did, when you're on the front line, when you're a frontline worker and you need tools to deal with mistrust, you're trying to test people, what do you say to people? We can talk about it at that one-on-one -on -one level, but ultimately we need leaders to also assist us in this and talk about mistrust openly as well so it becomes more of a norm. And so I talked about Reverend Wright, and after Reverend Wright had given his speech and then been on TV in the news conference and talked about mistrust, well, then Obama gave a speech about race. And he talked about, yes, you know, in some, uh, what the Reverend Wright is saying, yeah, some of that is true. You know, governments haven't always uh, been up front with people. But we need to get past that. And because Obama can say it much better than I can, I'm going to leave you with him saying it. The profound mistake of Reverend Wright's sermons is not that he spoke about racism in our society. It's that he spoke as if our society was static, as if no progress had been made, as if this country, a country that has made it possible for one of his own members to run for the highest office in the land and build a coalition of white and black, Latino, Asian, rich, poor, young and old, is still irrevocably bound to a tragic past. What we know, what we have seen, is that America can change. That is the true genius of this nation. What we have already achieved gives us hope, the audacity to hope for what we can and must achieve tomorrow. Hey, thanks. Now we're running up against time, but it would be good if we can have at least one round of questions. Do you, want, do you want to come up and you got to go? Oh. <laughs> um, okay. Should we take one, one quick round of questions? Anybody got any burning questions? Yes, over there. Do you want to take... We haven't got microphones. We haven't got, we've got moving microphones. Hi, hello. Um, this question is directed to Heidi. Um, I was just wondering, is there an inherent problem with 
talking about uh, these belief systems as conspiracy theories is links in with the uh, othering of the belief systems that we was briefly discussed in another presentation is a sort of a fundamental issue with belittling them or dismissing them as uh, conspiracies when there is sometimes a kernel of truth to what they have to say. Thanks. Let me take a round of questions because we're not going to have a time for, for a long question session. Yes. Um, Heidi referred to the um, CIA vaccine ruse, and I was just wondering if there were other kind of prominent um, abuses of, of kind of similar power that, that you could point to. It's interesting to understand them. Thanks. There's one over here. Um, hi, I'd like to know, on the question of NTDs, what sort of proportion of people are not taking up the drugs as a result of these um, fears? And also, when cost-effectiveness estimates are made about um, NTD mass drug administration, do they take into account those sorts of problems um, of actually giving the drugs out in the field or not? Um, we had a question in the middle over here. Um, Laura, you mentioned um, that, that racism was one of the um, key uh, drivers of mistrust, um, but I wondered what, what you had to say about um, class-based discrimination and uh, poverty and unemployment and those kinds of factors that where something looks like race, in fact, it's often more to do with class. And so to the whole panel, what about how, how, does, how do these conspiracy theories and theories of mistrust map onto the structural determinants, the wider structural determinants of ill health? Uh, that, that's great. I'll just add one further question just for everybody on the panel to think about. That Three people on the panel were really talking about how leaders, if you like, shape conspiracy beliefs. But Melissa, was, from our work, was talking about uh, another side to it, that, that actually the system of health delivery itself promotes conspiracy beliefs. Um, so I just wonder whether everybody could reflect a bit of that on, on that tension between those, those approaches. So I think very quickly, can we have a response from everybody in turn as they spoke? Do we have, you've got to rush off, so do you want to go first? That might be a good Sorry. idea. Um, I have to confess, I wasn't, I heard what you said and I would agree with it, but I'm not sure what the question part was, the first question. The use of language. Yes, yes, I would say language was a, a big, it can be a big <coughs> factor. I think one of the ways that in a number of settings where these issues were resolved was getting, I mean, one of the responses, I was really struck by um, Melissa's presentation, almost any one of those quotes could have been in the polio eradication effort, word for word, which gets back to the um, strategy issue. And, and just to respond to Tim's question, um, I don't think it's an either-or thing with leaders or approaches. In vaccination, the, the delivery system and mass campaigns have been a huge stress on this issue. But you combine that with a leader who takes it to another level and makes that point, I think it's really when these different things converge, the wrong language, people coming from outside, um, the system of delivery, 
the leaders, historic. We've come. One of the things we were working on in our research, and I, I we're all doing it in, in different ways, is looking at what are the multiplicity of of structural drivers and historic drivers that come down to it. And I was really struck that really a lot of this is about power relations, whether it's caste, class, um, race. Uh, to use another example besides CIA, where the question came from, but the, um, is in northern Nigeria, one of the antecedents of the, the refusal there was um, a child died during a drug trial, the Trovan trial, uh, and that, although it was an older example, it was in the courts during the 2003 polio eradication campaign, and a child had died. It wasn't even a vaccine trial. It was a meningitis drug, and it was never proven that there was an actual causal connection between the, the drug being trialed and the child, but there was enough evidence that their ethical behavior and the way of informing getting consent was un, inappropriate, inadequate. So they actually... Trovan, uh, Pfizer ended up paying a lot, not because the child died, but because their approach came up. So it was another example of, because clinical trials are full of challenges with conspiracies, blood being stolen, why are you, you know, that's a whole other presentation. <laughs> Sorry, that was a long um, yeah, on the issue of, um, of class, I mean, I think class is really important, and it does come up in some of those regressions I was showing. Um, that um, it, these beliefs tend to be linked to people who are of lower income and lower education. But it's not a very big coefficient, and controlling for that and other factors, you still get very strong um, other factors coming in, particularly the role of leaders. So I, mean, so I think leadership really is important. But to get to Tim's question, um, it's not the only thing at all. Obviously, and I'm quite sure it's, it's true that in many cases the way in which these roll, mass rollouts are done are, are designed almost to cause anxiety and, and create the fertile grounds for that kind of suspicion. But my answer to Tim also is to, we've got to be really careful about assuming that culture is, is out there and it's really kind of fixed and that's going to be the response because whenever we've looked at qualitative research as well, people are not sure you know, they really are searching. They look at this idea of dropping it, changing, and you find it's really quite flexible. And that whether that's why I find the the results about the treatment action campaign are really important. Had you ever heard of them? Not are you a member? Ever heard of them? Really affects how people are using condoms and whether they believe AIDS conspiracy theory. So I think culture is really mutable, and that's why looking at the ideological entrepreneurs I think is also important. And finally, if I may, just respond to what you were saying about the... I thought what Laura was saying at the end about um, we need to have those news forms of sensitive, I suppose, counselling. is exactly right. But it's not the only thing we need to do. I mean, because I think culture is contested, and we should be supporting people that are out there contesting the culture too. So you can acknowledge people's beliefs, but certainly on the Internet, to get back to that, there's a lot of contestation. And I, I want to just read a quote um, from a man. I, I was too intimidated to read it at the end of my talk because of the time issue. But this is a blog from a person who was a denialist who said um, that he... In 2008, I bumped into a website, AIDSTruth.org, and while reading it in a year, blah, blah, whatever kind of attitude, I saw the denialists who have died page. Something clicked, and very soon I paid one of my usual visits to a 
Maggie Ori's Alive and Well site. That was the woman I showed with no AZT on her pregnant stomach. I read about her death. I googled away thinking, please let it be a traffic accident and bam, pneumonia. You know how denialists usually say it's just a coincidence, like why not, anybody can have pneumonia. But having recently read the list of dead denialists and wondering if those weren't too many untimely coincidences for me, Maggie Yori's death is where I drew the line. For me, it was the one of too many coincidences, and that's where I secretly started to wonder if I'd been wrong. So even people who say they endorse AIDS conspiracy are so actually in this kind of mode of, of seeking our truth, and they are using the internet more. Now, so there is a whole strong kind of pro-science movement out there, which I think is having an effect. And how we study that, I'm not sure. But it also demonstrates how culture is not fixed. Minister, do you want to go next? Shall I respond to the question? That I think someone asked a question over there about... Can you turn the mic on? Is it on? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think you asked a question, if I'm right, about the numbers of people that don't receive treatment and the, whether or not the cost-effectiveness calculations factor in the sort of difficulties I talked about. Um, in terms of the proportions of people not receiving treatment, it's hugely variable from one site to another with, you know, between a region, within a district, between villages and so on. The slides that I put up uh, relate to you know, the, the study areas where maybe the drug uptake was lowest in the places that we worked at, but not completely so. Um, and it's certainly often the case, I mean, in those two study sites, I guess overall drug uptake, very variable within and between within villages, but maybe 40, 50% of people often not receiving treatment. It's huge. Um, in relation to cost-effectiveness, I think a lot of it's a sort of back-of-the-envelope calculation, really, and I'm not sure it could be anything other than that because the data is not really there to make those sorts of calculations. So even simple data on numbers of people infected with these diseases who might be at risk from these diseases, total populations living in the regions, it's very dodgy, a lot of the data. So it probably couldn't be anything else other than sort of on the back of an envelope. Culture issue, just to, just to clarify, I think you know, the point we were making is not that culture determines people's behavior at the receiving end. The point we're making is that the culture of those delivering the service doesn't allow them to see the evidence. I mean, certainly we would both take the view that the responses of people who are at the receiving end of these drugs is, is very dynamic and changes in relation to evidence as they experience it. And there are many activists on the ground of different sorts who push for the taking of drugs or the rejection of drugs, but lots of discussion about it. What struck us as extraordinary is, if you like, the, the closed world of those who are now involved in mass drug administration. Yep. Your last. Okay. I'll just quickly, a lot, of, a lot has been said that I agree with. So I wanted to just address the question about racism versus maybe other forms of discrimination and class-based. <coughs> and, and I'm glad you brought that up. But, in my research, I actually look at all forms of discrimination and how it's related to mistrust, and I consistently find a correlation. So whether you're discriminated against due to race, due to class, um, due to ethnicity and language use, due to being gay, due to, being, to having HIV, so all of these are related to mistrust. So I think it's, it's a general form of being maybe um, the power relationship that people have talked about. So, so being maybe um, less in power, less in control, and, and more underserved, and that's related to having more mistrust and more of these experiences and then leading to more conspiracy-type thinking or vulnerability to it. So. 
Yeah. I think we're 10 minutes over, so I know a lot of people have to go. So I'd like to thank all the participants and thank you all for coming. Thank you.